Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. An important discussion. Um, Frankly, it's one that American policymakers, I don't think, are focused on enough, except somewhat episodically and maybe haphazardly. The thing is, uh, Beijing has a plan to influence and shape international organizations, and it's executing it. And we, well, we mostly have just a bad attitude, uh, an attitude that's not entirely mistaken, I have to say, about international organizations, but it won't get the job done. What we need is a plan. We need a plan every bit as uh, involved and effective as the Chinese have themselves. In a paper we published last month, actually, Brett Schaefer, Heritage's uh, senior fellow here uh, on international organizations and the like, um, in that paper he details the problem of Chinese influence in international organizations, exactly uh, how they're going about it, and its impact on U.S. interests. Uh, most importantly, I think, in that paper, is, as is Heritage Foundation's standard operating procedure, he lists a number of recommendations about how we can deal with this. And, and we'll hear uh, from Brett on both those scores, that is the problem itself and some of the solutions, in, in just a few moments. But first, we've got a couple other experts to offer us their thoughts on the topic. Uh, first up is Dean Cheng. Dean is Senior Research Fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. He's focused on all things China, political and security for us, and he has been here in that capacity for the last 10 years. Among many other things I could mention in his bio, um, and I won't mention them all, um, he's author of the book called Cyber Dragon, Inside China's Information Warfare and its Cyber Operations. Uh, for me, Dean is sort of a reserve brain and actually has a brain much bigger than mine. Uh, and he's, uh, I'm fortunate that he's right down the hall from me and I can pop in his office, which I do to his annoyance, I'm sure, sometimes, uh, to tap into that brain uh, any time I feel like it. So it's, it's really terrific to work, work with Dean, and I'm glad he's here to talk to us about this today. Uh, then we'll hear from Victoria Holt, who's Managing Director of the Henry L. Stimson Center. Like Dean, there's so much I could say about Victoria's career. Uh, she's especially expert in working of, uh, workings of international organizations and how to turn them to the advantage of U.S. interests. Having most recently served from 2009 to 2017 as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Security within the Bureau, which handles international organizations at state. Um, so welcome to Heritage, uh, Victoria. We're very pleased to have you here uh, with us. And then finally, as I say, we'll turn to Brett Schaefer. Uh, Brett is Heritage's Kingham Fellow in International Regulatory Affairs. He's an incredible expert in his own right, having, having followed these issues at Heritage for 25 years. I know he doesn't look that old, but, but actually he is that old. Um, Even older. <laughs> 
in addition to uh, Brett's countless heritage reports, he is author of a book called Conundrum, The Limits of the United Nations and the Search for Alternatives, which uh, uh, you know, in many ways presages the work that he's done here on these issues in the time since. So I think it's obvious from the credentials of these folks we have here today, as well as from Brett's paper, that this is very serious stuff. In a town that's now driven by 280-character analysis uh, on a regular basis, it'll be nice to sit back for at least an hour and to think this through with some very serious um, people and to start thinking about um, solutions to the problems of Chinese influence. Just starting to think about them. We don't have all the answers, but uh, I think it's important to put the put the matter on the table for, for discussion. So thanks for coming out today, and I'll turn it over to Dean to get us started. Okay. Well, good afternoon. Um, uh, Brett asked me to sort of lay out some context with regards to how China sees itself and how it sort of broadly speaking looks at international organizations as part of how it sees itself. So let's begin with two key points. First off, China sees itself still as a developing power. That's kind of hard to believe, I know, because it is the number two GDP in the world. But when you think about, for example, GDP per capita, it's actually still at the, in the lower half of uh, world economies. And GDP per capita is a better sense of wealth. Um, it's very hard to grow GDP per capita, especially when you have 1.3 billion people. Every dollar increase in GDP has to be divided among 1.3 billion of your closest friends and relatives. Um, and that you know, means that growing that takes a lot of time. Despite having a key role in global supply chains, uh, China is still dependent on imports to support key industries. This is the heart of the Made in China 2025 idea, was that China wanted to, in fact, be more self-reliant. So that being said, China sees itself still in the period of strategic opportunity. This is the time when China can build up what they term comprehensive national power. Comprehensive national power is how China thinks of itself and other countries and how they rack and stack. It includes military capability, but also economic capacity, diplomatic uh, uh, influence, very important here, political unity, level of science and technology. Uh, the idea is that this is the, still the time when China can expand and modernize its economy. The other part to this, and this is uh, sort of a... Um, an irony here is that China sees itself historically as a dominant power in Asia. Where Europe had balance of power politics, Asia for 5,000 years never really saw balance of power, but instead had a single dominant country in the middle or the center, Zhongguo, the middle kingdom or the central kingdom. And then along the periphery were tributary states states that tended to defer to China on a variety of issues. Now, that obviously varied over the course of 5,000 years, but what you never had was balance of power politics such as we saw in Europe. Um, so if that's the broad context of how China looks at itself and the region, China also highly values the idea of sovereignty. There is arguably no greater supporter of the Westphalian system of nation states than the People's Republic of China. And part of this is because China in the 19th century, when it was weak, was the victim of external aggression in their view. This is the century of humiliation that began with the Opium War, ran through until the creation of the PRC. 
Um, so from China's perspective, the defense of borders, the right to prevent others from intervening in the internal affairs, this is a central tenet of Chinese foreign policy. Unfortunately, it's also important to recognize that China is a rule-by-law society, not a rule-of-law society. And this applies both in the foreign and domestic contexts. The law exists not as a separate entity before which all are equal. China, over the course, again, of 5,000 years, never really developed an independent judiciary, for example. Laws exist as one means of achieving what you already had determined politically. And that means not just domestic law, but international law, international treaties. It's interesting that China rejects various UN convention on the law of the sea rulings with regards to the South China Sea, but will invoke them when it comes to the Arctic, for example. Um, this e evolving condition, then, of Chinese power, as well as the broader global situation, leads to an evolving approach to international organizations. One of the most important things from China's perspective is to have a seat at the table. And this, again, harkens back to the 19th century when China had no voice even over its own destiny. Today, China's attitude is, as a member of the UNP5, as a number two GDP in the world, China has a place and should have a place at any international convening international conference, international order, international organization, where rules will be set. So for example, China interestingly claims to be a near Arctic power and therefore has a right to sit on the Arctic Council, even though no part of China extends north of the Arctic Circle. Um, in this regard, Xi Jinping is focused on expanding Chinese influence and Chinese power as part of what he has termed the Chinese revival or the great revival of the Chinese people. This involves, as I said earlier, first off, increasing Chinese comprehensive national power, but also increasing China's ability to influence others, both state and non-state actors, in both bilateral and multilateral relations, in international forums, as well as in more traditional diplomatic aspects. And China uses international organizations of various sorts to this end whether it is influencing religious organizations, like the Catholic Church, or through its participation in international organizations, like the United Nations. Um, so a little bit about the U Chinese view of the UN in particular. The PRC sees the UN as a key means of expanding its influence and a way of signaling key policies. Um, for example, the UN and its various subordinate agencies are comprised of states. It is not a multi-stakeholder state and non-state actor approach, and the Chinese distinctly prefer this. We see this, for example, in their attitude towards the Internet. They would very much prefer to see gover um, Internet governance shifted from ICANN, the International uh, uh, Corporation for the Assignment of Names and Numbers, which has this multi-stakeholder approach, which includes religious organizations, non-state, uh, non-governmental organizations, um, as well as governments, and move it to the International Telecommunications Union of the UN, which only seats nation states for the most part. Um, China's use of the veto uh, as a P5 member of the UN is very interesting. Um, it has used the veto less than any other nation, but by threatening to use the veto, 
it obtains its desired language, whether it's watering down certain things or uh, making sure that the focus is kept on one topic and not another. China has used its veto 13 times since 1971 when the PRC gained the UN seat. 11 of those times have been since 1997, so it actually used it very rarely during the Cold War. And interestingly, it has used it six times over Syria, uh, and one time most recently over Venezuela, and it has not cast a lone veto since 1999. And again, I would note one of the reasons for that is not because China goes along necessarily, but because China has influenced the various UN resolutions to make sure that if you don't want me to veto this, you'll water this down. Um, finally, just uh, a brief mention about peacekeeping operations under the United Nations. One of the things to keep in mind is that um, the uh, People's Liberation Army, the Chinese military, um, has been charged with the so-called new historic missions, and I won't go into what all of those are, but one of them is to, quote-unquote, contribute to international stability and peace, hence the UN peacekeeping operations. Now, one of the things to keep in mind, however, is that Chinese participation in UN PKOs serves multiple functions beyond that of the, you know, motherhood and apple pie while we're helping to keep international peace. Above all, China's military has no real history of expeditionary operations, operations far away from home. How do you learn to operate far from home without appearing like a hegemon, which the Chinese regularly accuse the United States and the Soviet Union slash Russia of being? You do it, I would suggest, while wearing blue berets. And so China has learned many of the basics that our military learned beginning in the late 19th and early 20th century. For example, how do you keep a significant military force supplied when it is hundreds or thousands of miles away from your own shores? How do you interact, liaison, with host militaries? How do you have communications channels, both all the way back home, but with each other? And what we see is... China has used its opportunities to deploy forces, whether it is to South Sudan or Haiti or elsewhere, as a means of working these kinks out. Interesting observation, I believe that every Chinese Navy captain at this point, Navy combatant commander, has served at least one stint in the Gulf of Aden, meaning they have basically figured out, you know, had to practice for real sailing thousands of miles, doing multiple port visits, uh, keeping their people supplied, their ships supplied, their ships operating at the end of a multi-thousand-mile supply chain. But they do so as part of a um, law enforcement effort off of the Gulf of Aden, not as a military force or a military base. So China basically has um, a very different view of the world. China has been developing a very different view of the United Nations, and um, we need to recognize that as we think about how we want to interact with them in that context. Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to join this panel and this conversation. I think it's a very worthwhile one and um, important set of questions. In some ways, there's two intertwining strategic questions that are underlying this, um, which I'll briefly mention and then speak a bit from my own experience in our working with China and dealing with China on the UN Security Council, and then some thoughts on the way forward. 
So those two major strategic questions are, what is U.S. policy and goals with China today? So if it's not cooperation and it's called strategic competition, as the administration has cast it, what does that actually look like? And then second, what are U.S. goals and ambitions within the broader international system, including the United Nations? And not that it's just one thing or the other, but in a sense, you need to know both to have a good, coherent strategy within the U.N. system. And so I think in some ways, that's the worthiness of this discussion today. I also think it's very timely. We'll be seeing the opening of the UN General Assembly in a few weeks, actually next week. Uh, our president will give a large speech. We've just seen the US ambassador be sworn in in New York and taking her place on the council after we've had a bit of an absence there. And so I think that now is a great time for those reasons as well to take a good look. So I serve in the Obama administration dealing with Security Council. And so I'll start first by just giving some observations of our goals and how we worked with China and dealt with China, and then also some observations on where we are now. So obviously, in the beginning, there are some top priorities. When you, when you come on the council as a new administration, the United States was very interested in everything from dealing with Iraq and Afghanistan to tightening sanctions on Iran and DPRK. We were looking at emerging conflicts that grew in Africa, in particular uh, in Mali and Central African Republic, the independence of South Sudan. We were worried about nuclear proliferation. I already mentioned the sanctions regime. President Obama also put a focus on nuclear security, trying to prevent trafficking, and of course the rise of extremism, which started with al-Qaeda and the Taliban, but then merged into worrying about Boko Haram, ISIS, and a range of other actors. We also cared about human rights, whether it was stopping sexual and gender-based violence, preventing children in armed conflict, and trying to protect civilians who increasingly were targeted in war. But in the case of peacekeeping in particular, which is the case that I was asked to look at, which I should remind you is one of the well-known Blue Berets of the UN system. It's a civilian-led enterprise that usually goes in with authority to use force to protect itself, to protect civilians, and uphold its mandate. But today, most peace operations are invited in by the host nation. They're not peace enforcement. These are beginning to grow. And so we were looking to see how we could get more countries engaged in the politics behind the peace agreements, but also contributing personnel to these operations. The UN was in short supply of everything from engineers and medics to basically getting support from the council on the underlying causes of the conflict. And so starting out uh, in 2009, the Chinese invited a delegation from the United States to go to its first opening of its peacekeeping training center. And I went with colleagues from the Department of Defense in November. And then that spring, we were starting up the strategic economic dialogue, and the administration was looking to better marry up our multilateral and bilateral interests. And so we proposed, well, why don't we try and talk to them about peacekeeping? We don't know what this plan looks like. They've got a training center, but where are they going? What are they doing? So this became a, a panel within the strategic and economic dialogue. And you can see one very tense line saying, basically, we met. Um, I don't think we had many more outcomes than that initially. But what it began was a, a pretty interesting conversation as they went from building roads in Congo to sending combat troops to South Sudan. And this growth was fairly dramatic. I think when we started, uh, they had a very small percentage of peacekeepers today. They have 2,500 in eight operations. And that spread throughout the new ones in Mali, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Congo, and elsewhere. They even sent, in, um, I think, an officer into the short-term observer mission in Syria. But they also went along with things that they said they didn't agree with. Chapter 7, use of force, protection of civilians, human rights, rule of law, governance. If you ever read a UN mandate, they're dense with all the things that basically reflect US values and which we stand by. 
By 2015, the growth in peacekeeping had really caused a crisis for the UN. They're having a hard time getting the capabilities to actually keep up with the demand for deployment. President Obama hosted a large summit in New York and demanded the countries pledge more. Um, and China surprised everybody by offering up a standing force and a promise of up to a billion dollars for a trust fund. They leapfrogged frog way ahead of what um, originally they were doing in just a short period of time. So how do we evaluate that and where we are today? On the ground, in general, they behave well. They don't have sexual abuse. They build the roads. They, in general, are cautious. They've had mixed results in operations where their troops have been called upon to use force to protect civilians. Um, but the challenge for the United States is, at the same time, that we are the largest funder of UN peacekeeping. We have the most dip diplomatic heft by anybody, and we're still the greatest trainer. The U.S. is down to under 40 personnel in these operations. So our street knowledge of a lot of these missions come from embassy reports versus people with boots on the ground or serving as Blue Berets themselves. The U.S. has unfortunately also continued to withhold funding for U.N. peacekeeping. We are currently about $750 million in debt to the U.N., forcing some of the governments that go to peacekeeping missions to basically have to not get reimbursed for their service, which has caused the storyline to shift from our leadership to our financial indebtedness. Now, this is not necessarily um, something that, that uh, is about China, but if you juxtapose the two profiles, you see what I would argue is we need to take some of these financial issues just off the table because what's going to happen and what has happened is that China has now started going to some of the meetings and calling for financial uh, savings by trying to get rid of human rights and protection of civilian staff on these UN missions, and that undercuts the very mission itself. What are some of the other quick trends I will mention that we've seen in the Security Council? As mentioned by my colleague, the rise in vetoes over Syria in particular. This is not something that China would normally do, but they have twinned with Russia to block accountability for the use of chemical weapons in Syria, access for humanitarian workers, and accountability for bombing of humanitarian convoys. They've also not necessarily vetoed, but blocked actions when I was still in government in places like Burundi and South Sudan by saying that this should be the decision of the country themselves or of the region, knowing full well that the, dis, um, the disagreements in the region would block further follow-on to some of the crisis we saw. We have seen that since with our human rights crisis, whether we're dealing with Rohingya or Venezuela. There has been a further dialogue ever since the use of force in Libya that has cast the U.S. as an outlier. And I think that one of our challenges is that we are now being portrayed by some as the rule breakers. That the administration's breaking off of the Iran deal, the Paris Climate Accord, the Arms Trade Treaty, its ongoing criticism of the International Criminal Court, while maybe a false narrative to many, is being used by some to pretend that we are the ones that are out of step. All of this, however, I think is rectifiable with a strong U.S. vision and a strong view of what we are about, both in our values and our security interests. For the region, we have many interests in Asia. We have a deep concern about what's happening on the Korean Peninsula. We want to stop the proliferation of nuclear materials and weapons, and we want to make sure that the Security Council keeps moving forward. So perhaps for that speech that's coming up and for the way forward for our new ambassador, a couple of ideas. One, let's really back up our diplomatic team whether they're in New York or at the State Department. Bed and marrying of our bilateral and our multilateral interests will help us. We should perhaps also announce our full support for the Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs, which is the lead UN agency that deals with Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, all the sanctions regimes, mediation, election support, all the security issues that the Security Council supports, 
and yet often they have to go around asking for voluntary contributions. We could use diplomats in all our UN posts. I'm pleased to hear there's been a nominee for Geneva. I know Brett will get into this and take a hard look at where we are playing a strong leadership role across the UN system. I also hope the administration could put a bit more of a vision forward for where its goals are. We've had mixed messages. I've mentioned the budget issues. I think the U.S. should pay up what we owe and then head into negotiations in two years with a clear plan if we wish to reduce our assessment rate with the U.N. But going into a continued arrears over the next two years will undercut the very values and interests that we have and not necessarily result in any of the reforms that we've rightly called for. And then we start the diplomatic effort now, engaging Congress and the leaders that we have to win that d debate and that negotiation in two years. And then finally, pick some of our values. We believe in democracy and human rights, the rule of law and protecting civilians. I think the, the administration could pick a few initiatives in this area and really go, go in strong and support our allies in suggesting that we are both about security and about values and win back and uh, change the narrative in many of the cases we've seen. Thank you. Thank you, Victoria. The point about vision is a really important one, I think, um, because um, especially on our side of the table, that is the conservative side, because uh, we have a lot of, I think, well-founded problems, whether it's arms trade treaty or climate change or, or whatever, and it's important that we're there and we're able to push back against those if we want to pull out fine, but we ought to be presenting some sort of positive vision as well, some sort of some way of framing why we're there to begin with except to prevent bad things from happening, bad things from our perspective. I think it's a very good point. Excellent uh, recommendations otherwise. Thank you for that. Uh, Brett? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> thank you very much. And uh, uh, just want to start off uh, by listing some of the things in my paper, which I'm assuming everybody here has read, right? It's uh, the first thing you got up this morning and, and said, I got to read this paper. But what, what, I've, what my paper does is it kind of outlines the arc of Chinese involvement in international organizations over the past 20 years or so. And just to give you a flavor of that, um, in 1990, I'm sorry, in, 19, in 2000, uh, Chinese assessments for the UN regular budget, which is the part of the UN budget that funds the UN secretariat, was less than 1%. Uh, today, this year, it's over 12%. Uh, in China's peacekeeping assessment in 2001, which is when the new peacekeeping budget uh, formula was adopted, uh, China's assessment was under 2%. Today, it's over 15%. And if you look at China's contributions to the UN system, they've blown up in accordance with those increasing assessments. Uh, in 2017, which is the most recent data available from the UN Chief Executives Board, China contributed uh, $1.4 billion to the UN system overall. And China gets a lot of credit for this. They get a lot of credit from this from other member states, from other governments, and everybody is praising China for its commitment to the UN system for its commitment to uh, paying its increased assessments and assuming these greater responsibilities in the system. Uh, and it deserves that credit, but we also have to be cognizant of how that compares in relationship to other countries as well. China's voluntary contributions to the UN, the part that it doesn't, isn't assessed, but that it chooses to pay, is only about $200 million in, two, in 2017. 
Now compare that to the United States. The U.S. in 2017, that same year that China was given $1.4 billion, the U.S. gave $10.5 billion. I, I, uh, sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, $10.5 billion. And then of that total from the United States, our voluntary contributions, the amount that we are not obligated to pay a single cent of, was $6.9 billion. So when you understand that China gets a lot of credit uh, for its payments to the UN system, also understand that the United States, for whatever reason, doesn't get the credit for much, much higher um, payments to the, to the organization. And I think that's partly um, based off of other countries' Uh, understanding that the U.S. is the largest contributor, and that being the case for decades, going back to the beginning of the organization, and sort of appreciating the new contributions by China and, and lack of appreciation or maybe a sense of entitlement that the U.S. is providing these resources. But it's also a fact that we're very poor communicators of this. Very seldom does the United States actually go there and say, this is what we're doing, this is what the contributions that we're making. We do a very piecemeal and very... Um, uh, focused on individual organizations rather than the global picture, which uh, China has been much more effective in doing, whether that is through the media or just um, communicating on behalf of other countries or just by noting the fact that its assessments have, incre have been increasing uh, over the years. Um, so that is one area where China's influence in the organization has expanded over the past 20 years. Another area where the China, uh, Chinese influence in the organization has expanded is leadership in premier UN organizations. Uh, there are basically, there's the UN, and then within the UN system, there's two categories of organizations. One's called UN specialized agencies, and the other are the funds and programs. The funds and programs are established by resolution from the General Assembly, and they're sort of second-tier organizations. The specialized agencies are premier organizations. They're treaty-based. The, the countries are members of these organizations, and they choose uh, the leadership of these organizations. They're a they're largely independent as opposed to funds and programs. An example of a funding program would be uh, the United Nations Development Program. It has a lot of money, but it is a subsidiary body to the General Assembly. Um, and an example of a specialized agency would be like the World Bank or the International Atomic Energy Agency. These are considered to be uh, autonomous within the UN system. Within the UN system, but autonomous within it. Um, so the first time that China a Chinese national was elected to be a leader of a specialized agency was 2007 with the World Health Organization. Currently, there are four Chinese nationals in charge of the specialized agencies. There's only 15 of them. So um, those four are the Food and Agriculture Organization, where a Chinese national was elected this past summer, um, the International Civil, Avia Civil Aviation Organization, the Industrial uh, Development Organization, and the International Telecommunication Union. The last, uh, China has had a national in charge of the four specialized agencies three out of the last four years. The last time a permanent member of the Security Council was let a national of that of a permanent, a national of a permanent member of the Security Council led four specialized agencies was 1956. So this is new and it's rather notable. Um, and as Tori mentioned, uh, China's increased its presence and participation in UN peacekeeping. Today, China has a little bit over 2,500 UN peacekeepers in, very, in eight different operations. Uh, in 2000, there were only 52. So again, it gives you kind of an idea of how China's involvement in that particular aspect of the UN has also increased. 
So this, it's indisputable right now that Chinese influence and Chinese participation in the UN is dramatically different than what it was two, year, two decades ago. Over the past two decades, Chinese influence and participation in the UN has been encouraged by the US, has been encouraged by other Western countries. The, U, they, the, the thought was that if China becomes a more active player in international institutions, international organizations, that if it becomes more tied to the international global system in terms of trade, in terms of its economy, that that interaction, that inter, um, uh, interdependence with other parts of the international system will rub off on China, that China will become more democratic, that China will become more like the West as it interacts with the West. That really hasn't happened the way that it was thought to be predicted back in 2000. Um, and in truth, China has sort of twisted the narrative in a very important way. Today, China has sort of um, expropriated the terms and the terminology of the West, and now it says that it is a defender of the multilateral system, that it is there to save the multilateral system from the Trump administration or whoever is there to threaten it, that it is a protector of the status quo. Uh, in truth, China is merely interested in projecting Chinese power. Dean laid that out um, pretty specifically. And it, through its actions, it's actually served to undermine the principles outlined in the UN Charter. Those three principles are um, the uh, promotion and maintaining of international peace and security, the promotion of self-determination of peoples, the promoting and encouraging of human rights and fundamental freedoms. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that. So instead of just adhering to the international system and the rules of the road, where China's core interests clash with those of the rules-based international order, China just rejects or ignores those rules or those judgments. And you saw that with the South China Sea with the, um, the dispute with the Philippines. Uh, China is actively hostile to self-determination. Obviously, we know this historically with Taiwan, but you actually see this over the past couple of months in Hong Kong as well. China's vetoes in the Security Council are designed to protect authoritarian states from international sanction and international condemnation. You look at Syria, you look at Venezuela, you look at Zimbabwe. These are where China is casting its vetoes. China is increasingly active in UN human rights institutions to undermine, weaken, or distort human rights norms. Uh, not the least is that it's very, been incredibly effective in blunting international scrutiny and criticism of its detention and re-education of Uyghurs in Western China. Um, at the UN Human Rights Council, Chinese officials intimidate UN officials, and they will go and harass NGOs that are critical of China. And this is not supposed to happen in international forums. It happens on, with a regular basis with China, and that's according to uh, Human Rights Watch, according to the Brookings Institution, and according to Freedom House. It's according to a bunch of institutions that are not conservative in their outlook. It is a observation that is made across the political spectrum. Um, uh, and China is seeking to use the UN and its resolutions to legitimize and promote its foreign policy. In particular, you see this in the Belt and Road Initiative, where China seeks to insert endorsements of the Belt and Road Initiative in Security Council resolutions, in UN uh, General Assembly resolutions, wherever they can shoehorn that in. And then they turn around and use that as a legitimizing um, uh, effort for its Belt and Road Initiative. 
Um, and I'm, one thing I didn't mention earlier is the expansion of Chinese nationals employed by the UN. Now, some of this is by definition. The UN bases its employment on a couple of different factors. One is global population. Another is contributions to the organization. China is a very populous nation, and its contributions are growing. So its employment is naturally going to increase. Normally, this would not really be a concern because it's based off of uh, independent factors like that, except for the fact that Chinese, the Chinese government does not see its nationals and the role they play in the international institution the same way that most other countries do. UN officials are supposed to take an oath of neutrality and impartiality in the conduct of their official responsibilities and duties. China does not see it that way. And you see this over and over again in the actions of China. There was an interview that a former UN Undersecretary General, Wu Hongbo, um, in which he admitted that he got UN security to detain and eject a human rights activist who was um, present at a UN seminar um, in was an activist for the Uyghurs. And he's, when he was, got pushed back for internally for that, he, uh, this is according to his own admission in this interview, he got an applause line from it, he engaged in retribution against that official to, um, to suppress that kind of criticism internally. Uh, he said that it is a responsibility of every Chinese national to advance the interests of China within the UN system. That is not how most Western countries see it. In fact, I and Tori can probably attest to this, there are plenty of Americans who work in the UN who advocated and advanced policies that the U.S. found uh, not particularly helpful in any particular moment. Uh, not every time, but it certainly happened with regularity, and they did that because they felt uh, value in their neutral stance within the organization. Uh, in October 2018, China arrested the president of Interpol. That's not a UN organization, but it is a very prominent international organization, uh, Meng Hongwei, and charged him with abuse of power and refusing, quote, to, pow to follow party uh, decisions. That's a signal that gets felt by every Chinese national in the organization. If you don't think that, you, uh, that they noticed that the leader of an international organization was detained and basically uh, made incommunicado for months at a time, that is a message that every Chinese national and international organization is going to see and say, wow, if they can do it to him, who is such a prominent individual, what are they going to be able to do to me? Under Chinese influence, <clears throat> excuse me, ICAO has rejected Taiwanese efforts to participate in its deliberations, despite the fact that it's a major airline hub. And China, uh, Taiwanese media have been refused accreditation at ICAO meetings, so they can't even participate as parts of uh, the media. So what we see here is just a different approach to international organizations by China than is traditionally uh, accepted and limited uh, or accepted as a limitation by other Western powers and other countries that participate in the organization. And that's why we need to be concerned about this. And in, I'm happy to say that Washington is a very partisan town, especially now. But this is an issue that's getting increasing bipartisan acceptance that the U.S. needs to address it and the U.S. needs to do something about it Chinese influence is going to grow, it's present, it's going to continue, but that doesn't mean that the United States needs to uh, not respond to it and not channel Chinese influence and participation in the UN in ways that is not antithetical to US interests, antithetical to the organizations and their mandates, antithetical to the populations that are served by those organizations. And I think uh, my paper goes into a little bit more detail about what the US, I think, should do about this. but. There are a couple of things that we can get right off the bat. First, we need to have better handle on Chinese tactics 
purposes and its objectives in advancing its influence and uh, participation in international organizations. We, uh, during the Cold War, we had our intelligence services report to Congress on a regular basis about what Soviet objectives were and how they were doing it. We need to do that with China. Uh, we need to know where to focus. Not every organization is equally important to U.S. interests. We need to focus our resources and effort on those organizations that are critical to U.S. security, foreign policy, and economic interests. We need to apply our resources more judiciously, meaning that if there is an organization that's particularly important to the United States, that's where we need to concentrate in our voluntary funding. Uh, we shouldn't just necessarily un, uh, believe that just because an organization exists that it's due U.S. funding. We should be concentrating more uh, in aligning our resources with our foreign policy objectives and interests. And finally, China has exerted a lot of effort to uh, use financial leverage over countries to get their support in international organizations. We need to, we can't fight dollar for dollar with the Chinese on this issue because they are dedicating a heck of a lot of resources to this, but we can better dedicate our foreign assistance for, to support our political objectives and to blunt, uh, I mean, you can look at the FAO election. Uh, there were some news reports that uh, China paid uh, over $70 million to get the, um, I believe it was the uh, um, candidate from Cameroon, but it was one country uh, to withdraw from that election um, and it was just a blatant, uh, if the news reports are correct, blatant example of Chinese uh, buying influence uh, through its um, contributions to that country. And uh, in conclusion, um, in order to do this, the U.S. needs to have effective, qualified people in place. We need to have an ambassador in Geneva. We need to have an ambassador in New York. We need to have an assistant secretary of state in I.O., we need to have people over in the NSC that understand these organizations, are able to conjoin them with um, the broader U.S. foreign policy priorities in, uh, in relation to China. Uh, we have unfortunately had a, uh, a lack of these types of critical appointments uh, thus far in this administration um, for a number of different reasons, but that is a critical element of this, and Tori's absolutely right to highlight that. And, um, and we need to be better at explaining ourselves in terms of our policies. The, the peacekeeping arrears, Tori and I disagree about this. Um, we need to better explain why we're withholding or not paying more than 25% in peacekeeping. Why are we doing that? And then we also need to join that up with a plan to address the scale of assessments to address that issue and avoid arrears after 2021. This has been this disconnect between our, our actions and explaining our policies is a critical problem. Thanks. Thanks, Brett. Um, I have a lot of questions, but uh, I'm not going to ask them because we only have about 15 minutes unless no one has a question right out of the box here. Yeah, right down in front. We got a microphone for you. Maybe identify yourself if you wouldn't mind. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, hi, I'm Doug Blair. I am a media relations intern at Heritage. Uh, I have a question for the panel kind of of the role of the United Nations maybe in the future of international relations. There have been certain conservative solutions that involve the, U the U.S. not being involved in the U.N. at all anymore and sort of pushing for a league of democracies or something where we admit that the Russians and the Chinese are not going to advance American interests and sort of democracy abroad, so we just pull out and start again. Is there a kind of concept where that would work or is the kind of 
idea that we should be focusing on expanding U.S. influence within the U.N., putting our money, as you were saying, into organizations that are, you know, useful for us and continuing to work with the U.N.? If I could just give a very quick, relatively flip answer to that. Um, the, the problem I have with some of our China strategy now is that we need allies. Okay, so we can have a community of democracies, and it's the United States and Poland, and that's it. Okay, we need to get other people involved in this, and and it's hard to imagine an alternative. I mean, you can have you can have additional organizations, and we do have a community of democracies, and we have other additional organizations. You're not going to get anybody to pull out of the United Nations in order to join us in an alternative operation somewhere. But uh, maybe anyone want to respond to other parts of that? Uh, Sure. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the short answer is no, we shouldn't pull out of the UN, regardless of what some conservatives or some conservative politicians uh, think about the organization. I have plenty of criticisms myself about the UN and how it operates. Um, but the fact of the matter is it's an important institution. It's where a lot of decisions are made. If the United States isn't there, chances are decisions that are going to be made are not going to be to our liking. So at the very baseline, we should be there to try to minimize bad outcomes. But it's also a place where we can achieve some positive outcomes, and we shouldn't discount that. That being said, not every part of the UN system is equally important. Under the Clinton administration in the 1990s, we left uh, the United Nations Industrial Development Organization because, according to the Clinton administration, and I agree with them, there really wasn't a purpose for that organization anymore. And uh, we withdrew. Um, the United States... Um, also at that time pulled out of the World Tourism Organization, which is uh, the Trump administration announced that they were considering rejoining that organization, which I think would be a terrible error because it's not a useful to the United States. It's not useful to our tourism industry. It's, a, uh, it's, it's frankly uh, an irrelevancy. And we need to be concentrating our resources and our efforts on those parts of the organization that affect our, cre our core foreign policy, national security and economic interests, not on the periphery. Um, and essentially squandering uh, time and efforts which are incredibly uh, valuable. Yes. Okay, other questions? Yeah. Hi, my name is Andrew Hyde. I wanted to just pick up actually, Walter, on a comment you just made because it was a question I was having too, which is what would or what, what are good examples or what is a good example of coalition building at the UN, for example, to counter Chinese influence on some of these issues? And what, you know, I don't know, Tori, from your, your experience or, or Brett, from what you've, you've observed, I mean, are there, are there, are there sort of centers of excellence or, or practices of excellence that would, that would be re particularly relevant in the next couple of years where coalition building scales of assessment as well, um, where you, where rather than us just being the U.S. against China alone, it's, it's actually building a coalition of countries. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. I mean, in a sense, that's the whole goal. You know, if the U.S. can put out a positive vision about what we're about, people will be drawn to that, both for the values and for the security interests, I think. And I think that's what I hear in New York people are hungry for. We have had, at moments, great clarity and at other times, confusion. And I think that the United States has a chance to then, with our new, a new diplomat going to New York and perhaps some changes in D.C., really try and put together a package of what makes sense. Um, one example, uh, the Security Council does not usually deal with human rights. The Human Rights Council came out with a blistering report on human rights in DPRK. 
And we figured out a way by building a coalition with security council members to bring it to the security council. Uh, nominally, we were also threatening a referral to the International Criminal Court, but China lost because we walked around and we talked about it with human rights and DPRK and we said this is an important issue. And while the Security Council is only dealing with it right now as a matter of proliferation of nuclear weapons, this deserves attention. And I think that went on for a number of years. And so that's just one of many times where, you know, it looks on the blotter like a meeting. But it's really about what we stand for and what we want to get done, and it marries our values and our security. So I, that's just one thought. On the scale of assessments, I mean, Brett and I have a, a friendly disagreement on this. Um, the U.S. announced it wanted to reduce our assessment rate, put a team together, um, and then we kind of dropped the ball. And so I don't think anybody wanted to pay more, but they might have because they want to see us as a rightful member and a leader in the U.N. system. Uh, and so I would argue, let's turn it on its head. Let's get State Department strategy on the table now. Let's involve members of the House and Senate. Let's brief the civil society members. The growing debt right now, I don't think, sends a message except that we don't have to play by the rules. And that is to the advantage of those who oppose us and oppose the rules. So anyway, if you're really interested in details, Brett and I could go off about that, but I'll stop there. <laughs> we Thank could you. have a separate <laughs> panel about that. Um, I'd also just throw in that, for example, um, for all the criticism that sometimes the IAEA has received, um, it did, in fact, uh, launch investigations of Iraq. Um, it has been part of the JCPOA process, even as the U.S. has left. It has criticized North Korea. If you think that there is going to be any kind of denuclearization effort, that is going to inevitably involve the IAEA. The other thing, again, is the International Telecommunications Union. And I think it's useful to note that while my previous comments were about mostly the Internet, it also has uh, responsibility over an enormous array of frequency allocations that affects everything from GPS to the Internet of Things. And one of the areas that is being hashed out right now is the Chinese um, version of GPS, Beidou, and how their frequencies uh, seem to be likely to overlap with the European Galileo system. This is an area where, again, the U.S., has the ability to forge coalitions with other countries to basically say, look, you can't just put satellites up that will start stepping on other people's frequency allocations. And if you start, if, if we ignore the entities like that going to the issue of is there a role for the UN uh, and UN organizations, you know, ITU is a key part of what allows us to have cell phones, reception around the world that doesn't get stepped on, that GPS works around the world, uh, Beidou and other things. So these more specialized agencies do an enormous amount of work that I think is often not heralded, but is a key part of keeping modern technological society sort of functioning at all. Yeah, that's really important because I think we're all focused on the big Security Council uh, compromises and the work that goes on there. But so much that we're not focused on is happening in the specialized agencies uh, where we can find common cause with uh, our partners in Europe and Japan and Australia and elsewhere on, on so many of these issues, so including even China. Well, yeah. The, um, just uh, one final. Uh, China and Russia, some other countries, desperately wanted the ITU to assume responsibility for Internet uh, governance. Uh, that is where the United States and European countries came together and pushed back and made sure that it remained within ICANN, within the multi-stakeholder model. Um, and so it's an example of coalition building to uh, push back against something that, that China, Russia, and some other countries very desperately wanted. 
uh, other areas where I think the United States can build coalitions, this is not necessarily against China, but it's working with other countries, is um, uh, on international religious freedom. It is uh, an issue where uh, this administration is working very closely with other countries to advance priority of theirs. Uh, it's uh, coalition building, not against China, but to advance the interest of the United States. Yeah, right here. We have a microphone for you. Steve Mosley, the United Nations Association. Could you comment on where you think the opportunity, if, if there is an opportunity for U.S. and China to collaborate ever at the U.N. on the climate change issues, since China is now being looked at as the one of the key good guys making a big difference. Uh, Beijing just published its latest data, I hope it's correct, that the massive reduction in pollution compared to what we're advocating is pulling back from all of those things. That seems to be an issue that's going to... Um, have a lot to a lot to do with the well-being of the UN going forward. Could you just comment about that? You can start. Uh, I would just observe that um, recent satellite data seems to suggest that China, a signatory to the Montreal Convention regarding chlorofluorocarbon uh, production, has giant plumes of CFCs emerging from well within Chinese borders. So one can choose to give credence and credit to Chinese statistics and Chinese reports. One can choose to view China as an upholder of uh, environmental standards that are world-class, or one could assume a more realistic view. It's up to you. Uh, I, I think it's important as well uh, on the Paris Agreement. Um, if you take a look at the data, the United States actually is reducing its greenhouse gas emissions. Um, countries that are signed up to the Paris Accord are not meeting their pledges under that, particularly European countries. Uh, and in terms of Chinese leadership on this, they don't actually have to do anything until 2030. And so when you, it's easy to sign up for, to an agreement in which you have no obligations whatsoever until a future date. And as we've seen over and over again, when the rules of the road clash with Chinese interests, it's a question um, they're, they're most likely going to ignore that obligation going forward. Uh, or at least attempt to, uh, to relitigate it. And so I, I think uh, China's getting a lot of very cheap credit right now, and uh, we'll see what happens down the road. Uh, but I think what, what we should be focused on right now is the realities, which is the fact that the United States is reducing its emissions regardless of what it did with the Paris Agreement and uh, other countries who claim to be committed to it or not. Well, my name is Nyan Deng, and I'm a graduate student at American University School of International Service, and I am from South Sudan. I would like to learn from you, how does China's presence in South Sudan and Congo and other African countries, construction of roads and other infrastructures, impact the relationship of these countries and the U.S., particularly South Sudan? Okay. Um it's interesting, if you take a look at uh, China's uh, peacekeeping uh, deployments, um, African countries are generally the highest um, presence where they're at, South Sudan, Darfur, Congo. Uh, these are countries where China has an economic interest in addition to a peace uh, uh, or just a general commitment to support the UN peacekeeping operations. And so I think that there is multiple interests of China at, st at play here. One is, uh, as Dean noted, uh, the benefits of China, to Chinese armed forces of actually deploying in foreign environments in a way that is not deemed to be uh, aggressive. 
Uh, second, it allows them to be on the ground to make sure that their economic interests are protected. Um, and third, uh, I think it shows, uh, it allows China to have a, uh, a talking point to say we are committed to helping uh, peace and security in African countries. It's a diplomatic point that they are um, deploying very effectively. Uh, and even more so when they say we have more peacekeepers deployed than all the rest of the permanent five uh, members of the Security Council combined. And so it's just a, there's a diplomatic advantage to it, there's an economic advantage to it, there's a military advantage to it, and I think we need to understand uh, all the aspects of, of why China's engaged in this. Let me, um, let me wind up here with maybe a question that has a positive outcome. Maybe not. But, but maybe it has a, a positive answer. Um, Dean mentioned the IAEA, and um, Victoria, in your remarks, you mentioned uh, cooperation on proliferation or, or, or work within the United Nations systems on proliferation. That's generally held up as a success in U.S.-China relations. That is one of the few areas where we have found common cause and we've worked together to address. Is that... Is that accurate? And is, is there are, are there any lessons that we can draw from the way that we've dealt with those issues, or, or how those re issues relate to broader areas where we may be able to work together? You mean in general, what, what lessons we have for our interests overlap? Uh, no, no. I mean, first of all, whether that's accurate—that yeah. that proliferation is an area where we have found common cause and we've worked together with the Chinese effectively—and then if that's true. What kind of lessons does that have for how we might be able to work with them in other areas? Well, just to state an obvious point, the United Nations is a wide range of countries, so it's never just a U.S.-China conversation, and it is actually a place to have countries disagree. I mean, it's meant to be the home for both an argument about values and interests and all this. So in that context, in other words, there's no ideal where everybody always gets along. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Actually, part of it is meant to be theater and to let off steam. Um, there has been an, a, an ability for the United States to win through the Security Council uh, limitations, sanctions regimes based on the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Um, and in general, that we've never had the perfect resolution, and nor has China. And as we, um, everybody knows, sometimes that's actually not always just about the U.S., constraining ourselves, but it's also constraining the world and recognizing this. So, for example, giving the authority to detain a ship off of Panama that is suspected potentially trafficking nuclear material affects that country. And so I think in general, yes, that is a successful example. Um, I would also say, and also in, in countering terrorism, um, we know about whether it's, um, I think, Brett, you mentioned, or maybe it was you, we mentioned the anti-piracy uh, engagement off of Somalia. There's an agreement on trying to limit, uh, in some areas, terrorists and their expansion. And we've, in general, had agreement on that. Uh, Boko Haram, we've had cooperation on ISIS, al-Shabaab, et cetera. Um, I would also argue the peacekeeping is still not a story that's done. Uh, it, it, you know, they have interests in these countries, so does the United States. We don't do peacekeeping because of it. They may be. Uh, but these are tough places to operate. And, and having been to South Sudan and seeing the conditions where over 200,000 people are still living in UN compounds, and those peacekeepers are next to them in a, one of the poorest countries of the world, you know, this is not something that is easy to do. So I still think that the capacities provided by China for peace operations have been um, beneficial to the UN's mission so far. One other area is infectious disease. Um, uh, it was mentioned, I think, that uh, 
the head of it was also someone from China at one point. But we have a joint interest in preventing the spread of infectious disease, whatever region it may come from. And I think that we saw that with the case of Ebola in West Africa, where the Security Council backed a health mission, for example. Uh, so, right, so that's just a short answer. There are definitely areas where interests overlap, and we can cooperate on solutions. Um, I think that it's useful just to keep in mind. Nations cooperate, whether at the UN or elsewhere, because their respective interests happen to overlap. Um, so I think that there is a common view, for example, that non-state actors, terrorist organizations, should not get nuclear weapons or access to nuclear material. Um, and in that regard, I, I think that it is safe to say that all of the UNP5, and frankly, nations not that are not necessarily permanent five members share those interests. Unfortunately, when it comes to individual cases, whether it's North Korea or Iran or elsewhere, then you start having to get into the individual specifics. Mm -hmm. China views North Korea differently than the United States does. It's going to pursue a different set of policies. Um, so do, is there a lesson there? Absolutely. Identify your own interests identify the interests of other key players, and if there is overlap, or if you can create overlap, then you have a much better chance of commonality, whether in the context of the UN or anything else. But conversely, you know, recognize that there are real limitations to that. If your interests really don't overlap very much, in general, it's really hard to, tell, to teach somebody else that their interests, that their understanding of their interests is wrong. Uh, <laughs> So uh, that's one of the things that I think sometimes is the, uh, a problem is the over-optimism. Um, but then, of course, I'm a pessimist. I was going to say, I could always trust on you to end on a pessimistic note. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, uh, I, I, think, I think what makes the problems that Brett has identified here so difficult is that it's, it's more than interests. You know, where we have representatives that come together in these bodies and they debate the differences and they come up with compromise, yes, then they're balancing their interests, they're negotiating their interests, they're trying to find common cause or dispute or whatever. There's another level that, that Brett identifies, which is the values of the organization and the extent to which the Chinese are changing the values of the organization at the ITCU or anywhere else that sort of affects the day-to-day -day operation of the organization and its... And its uh, profile and character in the long term, right? That, that's what's so difficult to, to get at. Well, that's the case for American engagement right. and diplomacy and some version, Brett, of what you've described, which let's take a hard look at all the organizations, mm -hmm. programs that we care about. You mentioned, I think, mostly economic, political, security. I would add you values. What are the organizations that defend democracy, rule of law, accountability? They're not all equally good. But that also is part of our vision and our equation. And that's where I think both of you have pointed out the erosion could sneak up on us. Um, and we can do this in a hard-headed and in a moralistic way, right? This is in our interest to understand what's going on and try and push back and combat. Um, diplomacy is by nature a dialogue. And often the diplomat comes back and said, I've just heard these 12 things, and we only agree with 11 of them, okay? But you know, that is information. And that's almost never bad to have that list. Uh, Brett, do you have anything to wind up here? <laughs> um, you don't have to, but just in case you Well, the only thing I'll add is that um, on the values part, democracy, human rights, um, the U.S. left the Human Rights Council because, in large part, uh, this administration 
uh, and many others felt that the Human Rights Council wasn't actually championing those values. And it was incredibly frustrated, not so much with the Chinas, because we understand where they're coming from. It's more frustrated with our supposed allies who are supposed to share these values, failing to stand up for them forthrightly and to work with us to try and fix that organization to address some of the fundamental flaws within it. And I think if this, uh, if those other countries really truly want the Human Rights Council to work, the U.S. would be hand in glove with them to try and get that done. And you would see the United States step forward and, and be part of that process again. But it really does take our allies who say they champion these values and say they share these values to step up and, and, and really uh, follow through in terms of uh, working in the room and working with other countries to, uh, to realize those changes. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much, all of you, for, for this great conversation. Thank you to all of you.